0: Hi, this is Chris with Sheepdog Church Security, and this is your church security roll call. Today, we have an opportunity to sit down with Carl Chin and discuss the realities and the importance of mentally preparing ourselves for an active shooter situation. Now, specifically, we're going to be discussing the Aurora theater shooting, you know, during the Batman, which a lot of us are familiar with that. And just what the officers and people were seeing and experiencing Um, So we all have a better idea from hearing this program, from watching this YouTube channel of how we might want to prepare ourselves mentally. Now, this is a little bit, the show in and of itself is probably going to give you some things to think about, Um, but we'll kind of finish things off or I'll finish things off with you or Carl and I, whatever, we'll, we'll finish off with maybe some additional practical steps that you and your team can take. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Carl. Carl, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you, Chris. It's an honor to be here.
0: So glad to have you here. So for a lot of you, I know you know Carl. Um, But for some of you who don't know Carl, Carl has been doing um, church security seminars, church safety team seminars for how long, Carl?
1: Well, the first time I ever spoke to an audience on the topic was in 1997. And that was to the Chamber of Commerce of Colorado Springs right after our hostage situation and that focus on the family and just started doing more and more speaking through the years after that.
0: And really, I mean, back in 1997, church safety ministries were practically nothing. I mean, they just they just didn't exist. I started a couple of years after that, just with my own team and just Googling church safety, church security. I mean, there was nothing out there except for maybe like, you know, security companies that hired out to the larger churches. So it just didn't exist. So one of the things you did, I don't know when you wrote this book exactly. When did you write your book, Carl?
1: You know, it's interesting. It was a uh, a multi-year project. I started in 1997, right after the uh, Trials for our hostage taker at Focus, and I didn't finish it till 2012. Okay. I actually finished it in 2007, December, uh, November of 2007, and started trying to find a literary agent for it. And uh, then two weeks after I finished it, we had our shooting at New Life. Mm -hmm. And I took it back off the circulation. You know, Chris, I needed to make some serious edits. (laughs) And well, the
0: whole point of the book from the bet, you know, from you gave me this copy and actually uh, you signed it, Carl. Uh, I've got to figure out which way to move it. But anyway, it's about talking to churches, leaders, law enforcement, civilians, uh, other security practitioners, just how important it is to establish some sort of safety and security protocols, practices in order to protect the flock, to protect the congregation. And it's an excellent book. And I'm going to kind of hold it up again. I got to make sure I get this right. Uh, Evil Invade Sanctuary, a case for faith-based organizations. You know, you're, it's on Amazon. I looked you up not too long ago and there it was, you know, people should get a copy of it. I think right now it goes for like 12 bucks. I mean, that's nothing. Um okay. <clears throat> So I hope people get a, a copy of that. Probably the thing that I most enjoy about what you're doing right now is the faith-based security network that you're kind of heading up. And um, it's an excellent organization. I absolutely love it. I've been a member for, I guess, under maybe coming up on a year. Yeah, yeah. Um, great organization. Well, well, I
1: tried to get you to become a member right at the first, Chris. We, we had a great supper in Minneapolis and I told you what I was doing and told you we needed you, but man, it, it's great to have you in there now.
0: Oh, and, and I absolutely love it. And just Good. for the audience out there, if you're not part of this security network, you really need to check it out. I'm a member of it and the what I get most out of it is this, is I participate in what Carl calls, calls the sheepdog um, coffee and um and what i love about it is this is you're actually in the the zoom meeting with all kinds of practitioners with different experiences and different expertise that you know these are guys that actually work safety and security or work in the security realm and right. um even though i like to think i'm really smart i sit in these meetings and I'm, most of the time i'm just i'm just there to listen and what people say intelligent experience it just it flows. And I, I, I almost always leave one of these Saturday morning coffees with some new perspective or a new thought or something that I had never even considered before. And I've been doing this a long time. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's just another great place for people to go and continually work on their own knowledge. It keeps you fresh. It keeps us um, sharp. It gives mm-hmm. you additional information. It's great, Carl. It's such an awesome idea and and really necessary.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you're right. It was the original vision of the FBSN was for it to be a member-owned 501C3 nonprofit. I I did not want it to be the Carl Chin Club. Um, I I was very emphatic that it not be that because I wanted it to be a place where members like yourself and others can come together. And like you said, some of these practitioners have been, some of them have been directors of security in their church since the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. Uh, I mean, we've got, uh, we just rolled over 700 members in 46 states in Washington, D.C., and uh, it is a membership association where they come together and they share thoughts, they share best practices, best ideas, uh, threat information, uh, different things of that nature. And uh, on top of that, it's just the camaraderie. I mean, my goodness, when we meet together on those Sheepdog Saturday Zoom meetings, uh, it it just fills my heart to see so many people out there like yourself and so many others that are getting to know each other. (laughs) And it's, it's kind of a family thing, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I love it. So let's jump into the, the content. Um, <clears throat> last Saturday, um, you put up pre- on a little presentation during the Sheepdog Coffee. And you were discussing the Aurora, Colorado shooting that happened at that Batman theater or Batman movie was playing at a theater. And one of the things that you focused on was, what it was actually like in that room, the sights, the smells, the sounds, the the absolute pandemonium and the challenges that the responding officers had to face. And the way you talked about it was it, it was so good in the sense that oftentimes I struggle with words, you know, so I've been to war twice I spent 18 years in law enforcement. I've seen my share of things. I've never been in an active shooter situation, but I've seen my share of things. But communicating what it's actually like is so uh, evades me. And it's so important, though, because we have to mentally prepare ourselves for what we're going to experience. So, to kind of lead you off and give you a good leading question here, Carl. Tell us about the sights and sounds and smells and the challenges that people were facing inside that theater.
1: You know, Chris, I have been blessed to set in many presentations from law enforcement and even the uh, state attorney general. Uh, Well, excuse me, it wasn't the attorney general. It was the uh, district attorney who had responsibility for that that uh, case. I've been in the cell where the killer was interviewed. I've walked the theater. I parked my car where he parked his car uh, just to get the feel of it. So I've been in many presentations on the topic. And the one where the district attorney gave his presentation, he played a 911 tape. And, Chris, it just gripped me because it took me back to the hallway of New Life Church. And when you hear those sounds, um, they stay with you for life. And then of all the presentations I've been through on the theater massacre, the killing, the attack at the Century 16 Theater on the... Uh, uh, in July of, uh, when was that? That was uh, 2015, I believe it was. I'll, I'll send my notes here somewhere. But uh, of all the presentations I've been to and things I've read about it, none of them caught my attention like the recent article put out by Caliber Press. And you can look up caliberpress.com. It's C-A-L-I-B-R-E-P-R-E-S-S.com. And uh, if you go there, you can look up the article that it's titled Coming to a Theater Near You, uh, Advice from the Frontline. When you read that, at least when I read it, it really brought it home for me this was an article written by scott burmaster after he had attended a presentation by two of the officers who had been commanders at the scene one of them is still with aurora police department that's jad lanningen and the other is a former aurora swat commander mike daly and these guys gave a joint presentation in new york for the New York Police um, Tactical Officers Association. And the author, Scott Burmaster, was there and captured their presentation. And the way he laid it out, I just thought was so applicable <laughs> to uh, church environments, large venue. Environments And by the way, um, I got to correct myself. It was July 20th of 2012 when that attack occurred. There were 82 casualties. Uh, 12 were killed, 61 gunshot wounds, nine orthopedic injuries, five inhalation related. There were a total of 76 shots fired. And uh, of course, it was during the Dark Knight Rises Batman movie. And one tactically clad killer who parked his vehicle behind the exit door to the theater, as you can imagine, sitting in a theater and looking towards the front you know how there's exit doors to each side of the main screen. You can barely see them. They're, they're in your subconscious. They're in your peripheral vision. Just a soft light says exit, and it's for immediate, it's for emergency exits. He parked his car behind one of those exit do- doors on the outside of the theater, went around to the main entry, walked around in normal clothes. I mean, he was dressed like Batman, but uh, or he's dressed dressed like the Joker, uh, as many people were that night. It's it's a thing, I guess, for midnight movie goers. I, I don't get into that, but I guess a lot of people dress up like the characters. He walked around to the ticket booth, bought his ticket, went in, sat down, got there early, sat down right down front towards the right, uh, stage left. Um, so he's sitting down and to the right and at a certain point in the movie that he'd already pre-thought got up walked out that exit door so if you're sitting in the theater all you see is a little brief patch of light as the door opens and somebody walks out but he had with him one of those little clips if you've ever been on a picnic and you used a clip to hold the the tablecloth to your picnic table, that was the device he used. As he walked out the exit-only door, exit-only, that's important to understand, there's not even a handle on the outside of it, right. but as he walked out that exit-only door, he slipped that, that clamp over the latch of the door, went to his car, which was parked right there, started changing clothes, got into tactical Clothing, put on a gas mask, uh, got all of his artillery and his uh, smoke bomb canisters. Came back, pulled the door open uh, with the clip that he'd put over the the latch, and reentered the theater, and then threw two smoke canisters into the audience tear gas and smoke started filling and that's when he began shooting and, uh, shot, uh, six from a 12 gauge, uh, shotgun and, uh, shot many from an AR that had a hundred round mag, a uh, hundred round drum clip, the drum clip malfunctioned at some point And, uh, but not before he was able to get off a total of 76 shots, counting those from the 12 gauge. And of course, as we've already stated, 12 people died. Um, Many more were injured and it rocked the nation. But the responding officers, one of the presentations I went to on this, uh, the, the presenter Showed a piece of paper they found in the killer's apartment or car. I'm not sure where they retrieved it from. But Chris, he had sketched out the theater. He'd sketched out the Aurora Police Department, and he had an arrow going between them with a little note on it, handwritten note, said three minutes. He knew how far away the police department was. Uh, he knew that his time was limited. Uh shortly after he came out, he was encountered by another police officer that just thought he was a police officer because of the way he was dressed. And then something went off in that officer's mind, I think, about the time he saw him getting in his car. And he thought, ah, uh, that ain't right. <laughs> and uh, that led to the arrest. And, of course, the rest is history. But what these two officers did, they did a fantastic job, as did the writer who, you know, some everybody has a story. Some people can tell it. These two officers obviously told the story very well, and Scott Burmaster recorded it very well. And they really did a good job of taking us right into the theater. And as you said, there were six categories that I kind of went through. um, And and Scott had gone through most of these. One of them I, I added later. But he went through the sounds, sights. I added smells, communication, logistics, and the human factor of the protectors. So those six categories are what these two officers did a really great job of helping us understand what went on inside of that theater.
0: Yeah, so I'd like like to get you to talk about some of those sounds and smells and stuff like that, the things that these officers reported. And one Mm -hmm. of the reasons I want you to do that is Just because I've learned over time through my years in military and in law enforcement, how important it is for us to take steps to desensitize ourselves. And I I can give kind of an example here. Um, I finished off my law enforcement career here in uh, Belle Plaine, Minnesota. And I was working, um, well, let me back up a little bit. Every couple of years we have to get our basic life support life saving training recertified and because it's the same instructor you know year after year after year he's kind of challenged to come up with new stuff for our training. So in this in particular training event he decided to show an autopsy. It was a tape of an autopsy. And we didn't watch the whole thing from beginning to end but we watched the middle part so you can see a, a, a dead person and go through listen to the process the doctor's talking to as he's cutting into the body and as he's opening up the chest and and all that kind of stuff. After the training was done, I was working with another officer who is relatively new, younger, um, not real real experienced. And uh, he started complaining to me about watching the autopsy. And and what he was saying is basically it was unnecessary to expose us to something that gruesome, you know, that, that right in your face. And I explained to him, I said, listen, you know, in these, this scenario, you're sitting in a classroom full of people you trust, you're watching it on a TV screen, so there's that additional barrier in all of this stuff, but the whole point of all of this is to help you to desensitize to that kind of event because you're, you're very likely at some point going to have to see something like that and function the way you need to function. Well, that very week, there was a traffic accident where a motorcycle T-boned a car and the, um, the state troopers um, estimated the speed between 80 and 90 miles an hour. So we're talking splat, I mean, it was bad. And so uh, me and this other officer, I don't want to say his name, (laughs) me and this other officer, we respond to the scene and he's, you know, I run over to the, to the guy who's dead. Um, But of course I don't know that. So I run over to him and I start chest, chest compressions while my partner is kind of bouncing around just uncontrollably, clearly under stress and all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm having to basically direct him what to do. Go get the first aid kit. Go get the AED, that kind of stuff. Now, this guy was dead. I didn't know it at the time. I started compressions, and uh, the first compression I did, guts and blood came out of his neck. Um, as I continued to do compressions, the, the spring back got less and less to the point where I was basically pushing his chest into the road, his back um, there. So there was no way in a, in a million years I was going to save him. Later, when we finally cut off his shirt, which you're supposed to do on the front end, but you know, things get crazy sometimes. His heart was actually sitting, uh, uh, you know, outside his neck. We could see his heart here. So after that's all done, day or two later, me and this officer are walking around the local school. It's late at night, we're pulling the doors to make sure they're locked. And I, I can feel he's under stress. So I I don't say anything because I figure he's going to talk when he wants to talk. And he says that he finally speaks up and he says, you know what? You're absolutely right. And I was like, right about what? He said, I need more desensitization. He said, that was, that was big. That was huge. That really impacted me. He says, I can't even imagine what it would have been like if I at least hadn't sat through that class and watched the autopsy, it would have been so much worse. And so the reason I want to cover these sights, sounds and smells and all that kind of stuff is really this is the first step for for some of you out there. Some of our some of our you know listeners and some of our of you watching on YouTube. We have to start desensitizing and take it from my partner, my junior partner. You don't want this type of if a shooting, hopefully, hopefully never ever occurs, but if a shooting does happen at your church, you don't want it to be the first time that you think through these things or see these things. So Carl, if you would, let's, let's jump into like the first one, what these officers report report just on like the sounds.
1: The sounds can be overwhelming. Um, and you're so right in, in your uh, lead up to this. I've heard you and other trainers and I've, I've, uh, uh, plagiarized you and others that I've heard through the years, the body really can't go where the mind hasn't been. And the mind can't go there. If you haven't had realistic drills, there's training and there's drills and they're separate. They're very different. And some of the best first aid drills I've ever been in are where they bring in a leg of pork. That's got plenty of blood smeared on it. And people are trying to put a tourniquet on it Um, and it's slipping all over the table. They can't get their hands around it. And you quickly learn why the TCCC uh, certified tourniquets are the best in the industry. If you're carrying the latest, cheapest thing that you got some good deal on an Amazon, you need to try to put that on a bloody leg of a hog. Um, And you'll quickly discover why it's not recommended. And you're right. There's a lot of people that say, I don't want to go there. That, that, why should I see the gross? Because it desensitizes you. And the sounds that they described in that were just so, so uh, descriptive. And for one thing, and I didn't realize this in spite of all the presentations I've been to, I didn't know that the movie kept running during the whole operation of trying to find the killer. The killer was arrested within 10 minutes, before 10 minutes, after he'd opened fire. But the officers in there didn't know it. They were still going through all the theater and the theaters, because they there's 16 theaters in that complex, and the movie was still running. Those who operate the movie screens and the projectors and the lighting and all that, they fled. They blew out of there as soon as it became obvious we're under attack. So there was nobody that could shut off the movie. This complicated 911 calls and uh, also the fire alarms were going off. Mm -hmm. So the operators going through that scene were going through fire alarms, uh, screams, crying, uh, pleading, the sounds of the movie, the smoke. Uh, but it was the sounds that added to their confusion and gave them sensory overload. And the, the writer of that article in Caliber Press used a word that I had never seen before, uh, cacophony, C-A-C-O-P-H-O-N-Y, cacophony. And I had to look it up. And what it, the definition is, it's a harsh, discordant mixture of sounds. What a great description. Um, This is what the responders were encountering just as far as the sounds. And if you're okay, Chris, what I'd like to do here is play, um, and I think your microphone will pick it up okay, a 911 call that came in from the theater. Can we?
0: Yeah, let's let's play it.
1: I'm going to just set that up here. Here we go. So I want you to think about, put yourself in the shoes of this caller. And this is the 911 call that I heard that took me back <laughs> to the hallway at New Life Church.
0: 911, where's your emergency? <laughs> you. uh, I can't hear you. What address? Computer, oh, no. Sorry, I can't hear you. Give me the address
1: again. Thank <laughs> you. What
0: address.
1: Now imagine for a moment, if you're a nine one one dispatcher and you get a call from somebody that says he's in a movie theater. You hear the gunshots, but what do you often hear in a movie theater? You go to see Rambo or Lethal Weapon or, you know, any number of movies. What's playing in the background? Okay. You know, I, I mean, the, I'm sure the 911 operator felt like saying, sir, would you please step out of the theater and call me so I can hear you? Right. Um, you know, these these kind of sounds were not only impacting the officers when they got there, but in those those. Critical moments before put yourself in the chairs and the environment of those innocent people who were in the theater and what they were hearing it's it's an awful sound
0: when I first heard that that audio it it made me think of a couple things um, in the time of working law enforcement you know vehicle pursuits that end in a violent encounter you know you're listening on that radio, trying to track the location and what's going on. And those officer, you know, the primary officer, the one that's on the scene, you know, they jump out of their squad car, that siren is still blasting. They're, you know, they're raising their voice in order to try to communicate over that siren. And it's extremely difficult to hear and understand. The other thing that it reminded me of, that that phone call reminded me of is this is in the army, they have what they call nine line medevac requests. And the very first thing out of your mouth is location. That's line one location. And, you know, so listening to this and, you know, we wouldn't expect a normal person to know this or think in those terms, but just getting out the location, they can start cars rolling in that direction. Yep. That can be one of the first things. So, you know, Take it from the military, the army, you know, take it from an experience like this, you know, train your people when they call 911 under emergency circumstances to start start out with. We're at ABC Church off of Meridian Road or whatever it is, you know, get that location. My name's this. This is what's going on. We need it. And if you practice that, just kind of like soldiers practicing that nine line, it becomes instinctive and natural and you don't even think about it anymore but boy get that location out and hopefully they can hear it over the chaos
1: that's right that's right but man such a good point chris and you know how many of you you listeners know right now off top of your head the physical address of your church i mean you got to have that ingrained into your mind because when you're in the box um and and shots are being fired. You're on the X, you're you're in the tick, the troops in combat. You're there. You're you're at the moment. Your training is going to kick in. And one of the things that you got to have into your training, into your mind, is the physical location of your address. Very good point, Chris. And one of the things that they mentioned when they were talking about the sounds was something that you just mentioned. Thank you. Is the the microphones on their radios. Very few of those officers had earpieces. They had the microphone that sits here on the side of their shoulder going off. And part of the cacophony was all of the radio traffic going off all through the theater. And uh, one of the recommendations that these presenters had was get earpieces, <laughs> get <laughs> wax molded earpieces so that you're not adding to the cacophony.
0: Right. And, and, it's, and it's feeding right into your brain when you have that earpiece. Right. So hopefully, despite the chaos out your one ear, you're still being able to you know, distinguish important messages that are coming across the radio. And this also right. kind of brings up radio quality. You know, so back in the day, and I take this back to all the people I ever suggested this to, is I suggested buying the, you know, the Motorola little household type radios, right? The ones you can order for camping trips and whatnot. And Mm -hmm. while they were inexpensive and you can issue a lot of radios to a lot of people, once you start drilling with them, you find out really quick how a raised voice for those cheaper radios immediately starts to garble. And sound yep. horrible, and you can't, you can't hear or understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. And, and so really, if you can afford it, and I get churches are on budgets, you know, look at something maybe just a, a little higher quality, you know, radios, you know, probably like some of your local department stores use, you know, they're not thousands of dollars like a police radio, but you can, you know, one radio that I like that we're kind of testing out is... Um, you know, runs you about $300. And Mm -hmm. once you buy the mic and the the earpiece, it's, uh, you know, costs a little bit above that. So probably closer to $400. But Mm -hmm. so far, the experience has been relatively good at a higher quality. And communication is so essential. And I know we're going to be getting that communication coming up. But Mm -hmm. communication is absolutely essential, because it's, it's, you know, in the military, they talk about, the sergeant being the general in the last hundred meters, and it's because despite all your training, your plans, and stuff like that, adjustments have to be made in that last hundred yards, that hundred meters, and so yep. that's where that communication component comes in. Where hey, I need somebody to cover the left, or you know, whatever it is that has to be, um, you know, put out. So, yep, yep. So let's jump into, let's jump into sites. I mean, we kind of already kind of hinted on that. You talked about, you know, obviously the gunshots, the fact that um, the movie's still playing. Um, Do you have any other things you'd like to mention as far as, you know, sites are concerned for the officers that were in that theater?
1: Absolutely. Um, And, and this is both, all of this stuff is so applicable applicable to our faith-based organizations, our sanctuary, our children's church, our parking lot, wherever something may be going on. So as, as you and I talk about this, I want your listeners to be thinking about your church, because these things could be very uh, applicable at your sanctuary. I broke from the article, the, the article didn't do it this way, but I, I broke the sites into two categories, environmental and human and I want to encourage your listeners to consider each of these. First of all, environmental. The lights were dim, and there were no operators to give, uh, to, to increase the lighting level. Nobody knew, nobody in there knew how to increase the light, lighting level. The movie scenes were still going, so there was flashes. Um, you know how it is when you're, falling asleep at late, late at night with a movie going on your TV, and it's like flashes uh, through your closed eyelids. Uh, that's what they were experiencing as they were going through there. Of course, there was the smoke that was adding to that. Not only that, and I hadn't really thought of this aspect of it, but keep in mind, he had popped off two tear gas canisters. Of course, the media called them grenades because the media always has to spin it up a little bit. And in this case, it didn't need spun up. These, this, this was serious. There were two tear gas canisters popped, and that was adding to the uh, difficulty of seeing. But the officers also had on gas masks, which further reduces the visibility. And one of the things that the officers that we're giving this presentation that was recorded in the caliber press emphasized is that tear gas oc of different kinds and smoke are becoming increasingly common tools for our attackers happened at our church our our uh, killer at our church used <laughs> smoke bombs it's becoming more and more common. And, and I want to throw in something that was not in the article, but it's been in discussions in many of the circles I've been in, and I'm sure you as well. Up until 10 years ago, we, we said uh, these active shooters, these active killers, whatever we want to call them, and I, I prefer the term active killer, uh, they don't fear death. They will kill themselves. And for the most part, that had been true for most of past history. But we're seeing more and more of these guys who want to battle it out with law enforcement once they get there. They want to go to the bitter end. Mm -hmm. Uh, They want to kill as many responding officers as they can. And some of them have no plans of dying themselves. They don't fear death, but they have no plans of dying. And that was the case with the Aurora Theater killer. But uh, as you think about these different sights and sounds that were going on, here's the thing I want to encourage you to ask your your team. Does somebody who's going to be in there, not like the theater staff that bamboozed when the shooting started, but is somebody that's going to be in there, in the box when the shooting's going on and the smoke canisters are going off and you're waiting for law enforcement to get there and you got nobody protecting you right now except your initial defenders. Is somebody that's in there know how to run the lighting, the air conditioning? Can somebody in that building on your team shut down the air conditioner? or take it to 100% fresh air if you want to get the smoke out of there. There is always a tight handshake between security operations and your facilities or hospitality staff. I encourage churches to cross-train. For one reason, uh, many of you have followed the deadly force incident study that, that I've published for years. 60% of the time when a, when there's a death at a church, when there's a deadly force attack at a church, it's during the week, not during the weekend when the weekend warriors are there, the, the hero security team, much of it, 60% of the time it happens when security team isn't even there. You gotta be cross training your people and those people who are cross trained, need to be at your six and at your back and with you when it hits the fan, when the dragon walks through the door, at least somebody who can operate lighting and air conditioning. And uh, one important thing to understand is be careful of dual roles. You know, taking you back to our shooting at New Life, when I came down the stairwell towards the, the shooting, it sounded like bombs going off. Our, stairway, our uh, main hallway at the bottom of those stairs is 100 yards long. Uh, it's hard quarry tile, drywall walls, drywall ceiling, 30-foot wide. It was an echo chamber, and it just sounded like explosions going off. And the killer was shooting a 6.5 millimeter on, on an AR platform, and uh, I could not begin to tell where the shots were coming from you're going, you, you very well may experience that. Uh, one thing I'll say is however you planned it at your little round table where you sat there and you did your tabletop exercise and you talked about different possibilities and you use things like the Aurora Theater or the New Life Shooting or, or uh, West Freeway Church of Christ or Sutherland Springs, whatever incident you want to use for your tabletop exercise, yours isn't going to go down like that. It's going to be a lot different. And when, what I mean when I'm talking about dual roles is I was on executive protection the day that our attack happened, but I was also the listed incident commander for when an incident went down. Mm-hmm. I was the backup. We had a primary and a backup. The primary wasn't there that day, so I was the backup incident commander should something happen, but I was also on executive protection, and I was one of the responders in the hallway. So after all the shooting had, all the smoke had settled, and law enforcement's coming in, and all the high-risk entry teams are going door to door, uh, trying to see if there's another shooter or hostages or any of that stuff associated. We're setting up the incident command center. We set up a unified incident command center with with all of the law enforcement agencies and all the first responders and myself. We have just got the first. Chart, flip chart set up and hadn't even started writing on it yet when my radio went off and I was being called to interview with the homicide detectives. So I had to leave the Unified Command Center and go visit with uh, homicide detectives. Uh, so be careful of dual roles. Uh, you may want to have somebody in facilities or hospitality that their only role. Their only function with your security team is to be there for whatever it is that you need. Lighting, air conditioning, fire alarms, shutting off the fire alarms, giving access codes to particular rooms where there's sirens going to go off if a high-risk entry team goes in there, that kind of thing. So think about that. Think through that. Now I want to move into the second category of the sites, which is the human sites. And we all talk about this. We have our little drills in our training where we say, oh, you're going to step over the dead bodies to find the guy. Well, that says easy, Chris. Uh, and it's very true. You got to do that. But we're human too. And uh, it, it, it will take an emotional toll on you to step over the, the hurting and wounded bodies. And all this time you're looking for attackers. And, uh, imagine throwing off a five-year-old child that's clinging to your leg and crying and maybe bleeding. And maybe he's looking down at his dead mother with her, you know, whatever wounds she may have. Are you really going to be able to throw that kid off, uh, and explain to him, I got to find the shooter first. Um, you know, some of these things say easy, but they work out really tough And I would encourage you trainers and you drill instructors, you operators who are taking your team through something, help your people understand. Can you imagine Sandy Hook uh, classrooms full of kindergartners and first graders and second graders? Can you imagine that law enforcement team going through there and those little kids grabbing on to them? This is This is their hero. They're finally saved. There's a man in uniform with a gun, and he's here to protect me. What I would go to him, if I was a five-year-old, I'd be grabbing onto him. You need to really think through those sites. And uh, I'll never forget one of the uh, presentations I set through from the Oklahoma City bombing. I went through several presentations in the year or two after the Oklahoma City bombing, where where people were going around the country and talking about that. One of the EMTs did a good job of describing how tough that day was, and he said he held it together. He, he was able to just do his job, just treat the wounded, get them on ambulances, get them out of here, go find another and get them on an ambulance, get them out of here. And he said uh, it was sometime in the afternoon, he was Coming down the sidewalk. I don't know if he was taking somebody to an ambulance, coming back from it. I don't know what he was doing. Don't recall that. But he said there was a uh, park bench sitting there in a blanket. And he said just as he was walking past that park bench with a blanket, a little girl's leg fell out of there. She was obviously deceased. And her little tennis shoes hit him square in the heart because they were like his own daughters and her little legs were about the size of his own daughter. Folks, you got to train your people on these kinds of sites because if you're not training and you're not drilling, what you're really saying is it'll never happen here. We just like walking around with an earpiece in our ear and a bulge on our side to show the other members that we're packing heat. We're the cool people. We're the, uh, Uh, church marshals, like air marshals, we're, we're the, we're the cool guys. If you're not training and you're not making every effort to get out there and desensitize yourself, like Chris told you and do these other things you're saying, it'll never happen here. You're in the same denial as the people you complain about train and drill.
0: So you added a piece um, that wasn't part of their presentation that I I guess you got it from Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman about the smells that yeah. can be associated in these kind of uh, scenarios.
1: Yep that that's very true I uh, the first thing I did when that article came out is I put a link to it out for our membership uh, the FBSN has a secure forum where only members can be in there, and our number two member is Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. He became the second member of the FBSN. and Dave is a very good friend of mine. He and I have shared from the platform 101 times together. Now we just did our 101st joint event uh, in Sacramento about a month ago. Fine man, but Dave read the article, loved it, and he he wrote me a personal message. And he said, the other thing that I would encourage people to work into their drills is the smells. And he brought up some very good points. And and I got to tell you, this is kind of funny, Chris. A lot of people don't know this. I have absolutely no sense of smell. So for me to talk about this is a little interesting. It'd be like a colorblind man talking to you about color. (laughs) Uh, I, I have, and never have had any sense of smell. It's, it's as close to non-existent to me as it is in anybody that I went to an ear, nose and throat doctor once. And he told me everybody can smell. He said, can you taste? I said, of course. And he, he, he did several tests on me and he said in his career, he'd never seen anybody that had such a lack of smell. So I, I don't have it, but it made sense to me as Dave was describing this. For one thing, dying, wounded, or mortally engaged people defecate and wet themselves. They they crap their pants. They wet their pants. They'll vomit. They'll uh, they'll excrete uh, unusual amounts of sweat. Uh, you can actually sweat blood uh, when Christ experienced that in the garden of Gethsemane. That is a, uh, if you look that up, that's a medical thing that can happen. I've been so angry before I popped blood vessels in my eyes. Um, probably not a healthy thing to admit to people, but, but I get intense. Um, and so people excrete different things um, when they're dying, wounded or, mortally engaged and uh one of what dave said is one of the most basic primal and powerful sensory inputs is smell and he said uh most often urine feces and blood uh, are part of what responders deal with and he said the special elite forces of the military train with a five gallon bucket filled with all of that stuff, blood mixed, you know, they, they'll kill animals, you know, they'll go to a butcher shop and get plenty of blood from cattle or hogs or whatever. They'll add that to urine and uh, feces, put it in a five gallon bucket, um, get some vomit if they can from a hospital or somewhere, get get just the raunchiest smelling things they can have and have that in the room where they're gonna do a drill. Um, it's just, as Dave said, it's one more stress inoculation tool. You called it desensitizing, he calls it stress inoculation.
0: Yeah, so to kind of start wrapping this up, I mean, we've talked about sights, smells, sounds, um, all that kind of stuff, and I think it's a, a really good, a really good start for a lot of people. Just to even just listen to this conversation, but at the same time, there is such a huge demand to to take things to the next level and continuing to move towards that inoculation, the stress inoculation, as Dave calls it, um, because we don't want to be like that other officer who was just exposed to one thing. You know, right now for the listeners and people watching out there, you're safe, right? You're just, you're just hearing about it. And some of the things that Carl said about the children and having to deal with that, just the thought of that is very emotion provoking. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sitting in an office chair in my home in the basement, and that's disturbing. Now imagine seeing it. Mm -hmm. or being there and doing that. So while this is maybe a little step, we have to continue to move forward on some some of that. Last week, um, when we were talking about verbal de-escalation and looking for the signs of somebody to be violent, we talked about, you know, find YouTube videos where force had to be used and then play that segment, just the first segment before the violence begins start recognizing body language and tone of voice and all that kind of stuff and then go on to see what happened um, afterwards. You can kind of do the same thing here, as you know, you know, maybe get some videos and see some things. Now it's pretty hard to find videos of this kind of violence, um, but you can at least start with some of these physical altercations or maybe some shootings that stop just after the gun fires. But at least start looking in that kind of stuff and think about the sights and the sounds and the smells and start to process that information. And then ultimately, like Carl was saying, what else can you do? What things can you bring in? You know, is it fake blood to begin with, you know, or is it, you know, slaughtering a pig? I don't know. You know, it's, you know, but start moving in that direction to prepare yourself. And some people are going to have to, um, some people are going to have a real problem with this, like my partner did. He just mm-hmm. saw the autopsy on TV in a safe room, and it bothered him. Well, that mm-hmm. just tells me, and it told him, I need more. I yep. need more exposure. Yep. I need to take. So Carl, do you have any last statements about yeah. the sites and smells that you'd like to bring up?
1: Well, uh, I think I'm pretty well covered on that. I think we've given your folks enough to think about but the last three categories I'd like to touch on. If if we have time communication, yeah, we do. go ahead. The human factor. First of all, the communication. Uh, those of you who have been at in after action reviews, and I know you have Chris, this is always a topic. <laughs> communication is a topic of every after action review. And uh, it, it will, it will come up. If you, have the dragon enter your church. And the different things that added to the communication issues was when they had intra and interagency teams trying to talk over these open mics and with each other and running into roadblocks. Uh, for example, the fire department was set up in such a way that, that only the commander could make specific uh, judgment calls just ridiculous uh example being one of the things that these officers told about that you you just shake your head at and wonder how can normal people function this way but if you have a commander who is so absolute on chain of command and you've been trained in that a couple of the officers ran out to get a stretcher from emt they couldn't let the emergency response people go in yet because it's still a hot scene, Mm -hmm. but they needed a stretcher to put a person on. The ambulance technician wouldn't give it to them. He said, we can't let our equipment out of our own control without our supervisor's authority. Well, you can imagine the type of clash that occurred at that point. I'm not sure if that EMT driver survived that, but they got the stretcher. But that kind of nonsense, uh, they talked about the egos of the different responding agencies and different responding officers, even. Uh, a hot crime scene is no place for egos uh, on any level. Uh, What you said a while ago is the uh, sergeant becomes the general in the last hundred yards of the of the assault. Um, And there's a lot of generals in there. (laughs) And these are a type personalities or high D's or whatever you want to call them. And they are barking commands. And sometimes they're barking those commands to each other and they they did a good job of describing all that and uh uh, like i said earlier one thing that added to the communication issues was that the killer had been in custody for a long time before most of those inside the theaters theaters get that there were 16 different rooms think about that in your church just because you have a attack happen in your sanctuary First of all, doesn't mean that there's not a counterattack going on somewhere else, and that's exactly what law enforcement is going to be doing. They're going to be going through absolutely 100% of every room, closet space, and cabinet big enough to stick a body in within your church. You don't know where all they're going. In this case, they were going through 16 different theaters, not just the one where the shoot where the attack happened, but the 15 others, not knowing that at least one of the shooters is arrested uh, because that communication didn't come back around. And one of the things I emphasize to people, do radio drills. You do all your other kind of drills, your time and distance drills, your executive protection drills, your lost child, your fire alarm drills, all, all these drills. Do radio drills. Have everybody on your team that carries a radio get in a circle with their radios on and have one of your team go 100 yards away in a closed room where they can't hear him and have that guy start screaming over the radio with his mouth right next to the microphone. I got a killer here. He's looking at me. We're in such and such a room. But having scream it in such a way that really pushes him into that box, into that place where he's face-to-face with the dragon. And see if any of those people gathered around in a circle have a clue where to go to. Uh, don't push to think. Push to talk. And do so in a calm way regardless of what's happening around you, because you want that message, that broadcast to get out there in a clear, understandable way. Folks, drill on your radios. And like Chris said, don't get the Bass Pro Special. Get a good radio. I made the same mistake, Chris. I regret, and so many of your listeners, I'm sorry, Uh, for years I carried some... Cheap nonsense radio that I thought was a great deal for people. I regret showing those. Now, let's talk about logistics, too. Logistics of that were the problems of the logistics. One is the staging area of EMT. They had their ambulances set up outside too far away from the theater, they were having to carry people too far to get them into the ambulances. Pre-think those kind of things. If you walk your parking lot, walk your environment wherever it's at and think about if it happens, where's your staging area going to be? Think about alternative entries and exits. How are you going to get emergency first responders in and out of those alternative entries and exits around your building? You got enough people to man them all. uh, What are you going to do? Think about access and egress for emergency vehicle flow. Um, you know, I've, I've heard some say, you know, everybody on site is going to get interviewed before they leave. Nonsense. That ain't going to happen. For one thing, as you're pulling in, as law enforcement and and uh, emergency vehicles are pulling into your church, they're meeting dozens of cars that are fleeing. They're not going to stop every one of those and say, hey, did you see shots or hear bl-? Hear shots or see blood, uh, there is going to be a mass exodus coming out of your church. Think about how that's going to flow with emergency vehicles coming in. Think about room clearing. This was a huge problem at the Aurora Theater. Uh, Several rooms were cleared several times. One team would go in, clear it, it's all cleared. They would not do tape or anything else across the door to let the next team know that this room has been cleared. Think about reunification pre-planning. Vehicles in the parking lot aren't going to move. And we experienced this at Focus on the Family in 1996. We experienced it at New Life Church in 2007. All those multiple vehicles in the parking lot aren't going to move until law enforcement has got through them. So you've got a 1,000 people in there when it goes down, 2,000, 200. Uh, Where are they going to be taken to? And when they get there, how is the reunification process going to go? Uh, Are they missing a child? Is that child dead? Uh, Who's going to communicate that to them? There's there's plenty of information out there on reunification process and pre-planning for it. And that hit them smack in the face at Aurora. They were not prepared for the reunification pre-planning. Think about that.
0: The Here last Minnesota, of- okay. it's, um what's your plan for that unification place being held in two feet of snow? Right. Right. You know, so we have to even think about weather and, and care and those kind of things when it comes to that assembly area, you reunification area. Yep.
1: Who how are you going to transport those people? In both cases that I've been involved in, New Life and Focus on the Family, uh, calls were made to the local school district and they called in their bus drivers and came and, and they transported people with bus drivers. Excuse me, that did not happen at New Life, it happened at Focus on the Family. Uh, but it's, it's a very common thing where buses are called in by somebody else the uh, to, to transport people. The last thing that these guys did a good job of talking about was the emotional toll on the defenders. I call it the human factor. Uh, those who are in charge of the teams, and we're speaking primarily to church security teams here today, Chris. So all of you have a commander, a director, a team lead, etc. cetera, regardless of what role they serve. If they're going to be leading that team, they need to understand different people on their team are going to be at different places emotionally as far as their capability of of dealing with all these sights, sounds, smells that we've just gone through. All the cacophony, the chaos, the blood, the death, the dying, the hurting. You've got to watch for it and know how to deal with it when you see it. These these presenting officers at this event, uh, one of them did a good job of saying he saw one of his most seasoned SWAT team operators was zoning out. He could see that thousand yard stare in his face after dealing with all the death. And in his case, had to tell him, get out of here. Another one was holding up six-year-old Veronica Mosher Sullivan, who was the youngest person killed at Aurora. The seasoned, high-intensity SWAT team operator was holding this little girl crying like a baby. She was gone. There was nothing he could do for her. And he was down there on the floor holding her. And he looked up at his commander and he basically said, I can't do it. And that commander recognized this is one of the men I need the most. He had to talk stern to him, get that child outside, put her in the ambulance, get your blankety blank back in here. He said again, I can't do it, sir. I can't do it. (laughs) He got even tougher with him said, you've got to do it. We've got to find this killer. Keep in mind, this is when they didn't know the killer had already been arrested. That time, that essential guy pulled it together, got outside, delivered that little girl to the EMT and went back in and went back to his duty. As a leader, you got to recognize the difference between somebody who needs to be out and somebody who needs to be in and have the wherewithal to know the difference and communicate that well listen in every major incident different people respond different ways and uh, unfortunately many of the times it sets up a uh, after a major incident like this your time at the x or in the box whatever you want to call it Um, but that most emotional and most distressful encounter you face, you will have a fallout. You'll have a falling out with your other team members. It's like there's explosive dust in the air that exists for weeks after an incident. I've seen it. I've experienced it. Um, And people will turn on each other. Good people. People on your team will, will get off your team and get onto your watch list. It happens. And
0: One of the ways, really, the only way to really know how people are going to respond is, well, let me restate that. You know, training is so critical because the more you train with a team and you're interacting and, you know, you're, you're creating, you know, that stress training to try to inoculate yourself from that you will start to get a better sense of who's going to be able to do what in these search situations. Now, that's not a guarantee. You know, um, I've seen being in war, I've seen guys that were regularly brave have a bad day and suddenly they were acting like other people that never act. Right. And Mm -hmm. so you have to kind of keep that in mind, but that training does help. Um, in my own personal experience is I, I'm one of those people that turn off emotionally in high stress situations. And I'm able to act and respond and do what I've been trained to do. I don't know how much of a critical thinker I am at that point. It's more of automatic, do what you're trained. Um, but yeah, there's, it's through training that number one, maybe you get that response. People are just gonna follow through on their training or at least you, get a, you start to get that sense, I guess, is what I'm ultimately getting at. You know, I think about my past team that I had. We trained quite a bit. And I knew in my mind which three were most likely going to be running right behind me into the mouth of the lion. And I knew that the other ones, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> I don't know. You know, um, one of the things when we train active shooter, is one of the things I talk about is an engagement, uh, engagement versus containment. And the reason we made that distinction was from my my own personal experience that has taught me that some people will kind of freeze or not be able to act. So if I can at least get them to set up on a doorway or set up watching a hallway or something to that effect where they're just sitting there waiting, and hopefully protecting, stopping any bad guy from entering an area, that's, you know, that would be a good thing. But the reason I do that is because I don't know if John Smith is gonna freeze. And right. so if I say, okay, John, it's okay. You don't need to come running with me into the sanctuary. I prefer you would, but it's okay if you don't. At least stay here, stay undercover and watch this avenue of approach um, for the bad guy. And so, yeah, it's, it's training, training, training. And then um, one of the new things we added to our active shooter module was that mental aftercare. It's not, you can't just, you know, say, okay, we survived it and have one conversation and then it's over. No, it's continue on the pastors need to be involved. Some people might need to see a counselor on a regular basis Um, There's going to have to be some deliberate team building exercises, low stress team building, because like you said, Carl, you can have that infighting, those relationships um, falling apart. And that still might happen, but there's certain things that we can do to mitigate that. And Mm so um, that has to be part of your your active killer plan is what is the aftercare.
1: You know, I call it the Martinez-McCoy syndrome. Uh, The Austin Tower sniper in 1966, there were two police officers that killed him. They both, they went to their grave despising each other. It was Martinez and McCoy. They each wanted to take credit for having been the one who killed him. And it wound up being a lifelong feud that never got solved. Uh, After a major incident like that, there, there will be continuing struggles among your team. You need to, you need to understand that. And if you got somebody who's emotionally unstable prior to an incident, it ain't going to make them better.
0: Absolutely. All right. So real quick, um, before I let you go, uh, give us your best, uh, your, your best, um, faith-based security network promo. Um, I, like like I kind of started this out with, I think, personally, in my humble opinion, I don't think there's a person that's listening to this podcast or watching on YouTube. If you're at all a practitioner and you're serving your church as a safety person, uh, get become part of this network. It's absolutely invaluable. I found it invaluable. And um, so definitely check it out. But Carl, give us your best pitch for this thing. <laughs>
1: Well, well, the best pitch I can give is this. It is a vetted membership. You apply for membership. And then our screeners confirm through a process of actually contacting real people that you do serve the faith-based or law enforcement agency that you put on your application. And uh, then once you're approved for membership, then you're put into the secure forum where you can have these kind of conversations with other practitioners about that simple. And we're not in competition with any trainers or anybody else out there. That's, that's in this space. Uh, that's why I went to you, Chris and others, uh, we're very good friends with with most of the trainers out there von baker and i from Stratagos were on the phone for over an hour yesterday we're not in competition with trainers uh you've had simon osama on here i was going to try to mimic his accent today i just can't he's a hard act to follow i love that guy uh we are not competitors to anybody else out there in this space we are a association where people come together and share their experiences and their resources etc
0: and it's, 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 it's 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 invaluable i mean it's it's you can't put a price on it and really yeah, you can have these conversations with other people that are actually doing it. They're not posers, they're not pretending they're actually doing this kind of stuff. And you can have a much more in some cases, you know, you can have a much more in-depth conversation about, you know, of these situations where you wouldn't want them to be public. That's what I love about the closed, close net, closed net or whatever, the closed um part secure of that. Plan. <laughs> yeah, it just, and so you're, you're freer to speak. You're freer to um, spend ideas. I was talking to a gentleman just the other day and he said, you know, can anyone take your training? And I said, yep, you can. He said, well, what about, you know, bad guys getting it? And I said, and I told him, I said, you know, we're not talking about your specific procedures. We're talking general guidelines and principles to help you establish those things because your church is your church. What can I tell you about your church? Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're part of a network like this, you're gonna have trusted confidants, people you can refer to and talk to, and you know that they don't wish you any harm. They're not going to use your plans to exploit you later. I mean it's a it's a good trust good trustworthy uh, group to be a part of. So where where do they go to find um, the the faith-based security network?
1: Well, it's faith-based security network if you just Google that, you'll find our website. It's FBSNAmerica.com. Excellent. We often refer to it as just the FBSN, but it's FBSNAmerica.com. And I just want to say one other thing. Uh, There's, I, I mentioned this briefly well ago, there's a lot of trainers and speakers and promoters in this space I don't call it an industry. I call it an endeavor. This is a great endeavor. And some of these folks come back from theater and war from a lifetime of law enforcement. And they think they have something to offer. And, and they they do. They honestly do. But there's some people who truly get it, what it is to be an ambassador of Christ and to have that in their heart, first and foremost, as they serve their churches. And Chris, you have been an example of that. And I thank you for your outreach that you've done, your sheepdog security outreach. You have made thousands of churches out there safer every year. And I just want to be on record as saying thank you. You're doing a great job. You keep doing it. Just like Galatians 6, 9. Don't grow weary of doing a good thing. Keep it up, brother.
0: Thank you. You're making me blush here. (laughs) All right. So before we let Carl go, I just want to remind everybody. Let's see. I got to hold this up right again. You know, getting a copy of this book wouldn't hurt either. It's great. It's going to challenge you. It's going to give you some things to think about. It's going to be, it's going to inspire you, encourage you. Um, it also might even help you talk to some other people that are a little bit more resistant to the idea of safety ministries. Um, we've all been there we've experienced starting something like this at a church and the struggles and the challenges and sometimes we have to figure out what what approaches to take and the words to speak and you know something that this book does here once again I got it right. find thing, it in the,
1: in the camera
0: right i'm trying to get in the camera here um, one of the things this does is it gives you some language and it gives you some examples and some things to talk about and just kind of up your game so get a copy of that like i said 12 bucks you can't hardly miss it and then definitely become a um become a member of the faith-based uh, security network uh, you'll see me there occasionally on on saturdays and well, i an uh,
1: to have you there
0: Yeah, I love being there. But like I I said before, sometimes I just like to sit there and listen to other people talk and what they have to say. And I almost always leave with either a new perspective on a topic that I'm familiar with or sometimes even a challenge like, wow, I had never considered that before. And it really helps me out. And if it's helping me out, I'd like to think that it could help a lot of the listeners out there. So, Carl, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Chris. And thank everyone of your listeners. I, I thank your audience for what you do. I know those of you who are serving in your church security team don't do it for the money.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. It is definitely a service and it's a, a sacrifice. That's right. uh, when you start to add in, not just, you know, working is just a small percentage and right. training is the larger commitment that you're actually making when you join a safety ministry. So, and that's time. And sometimes it's your own personal money that you're spending in order to get this kind of training. So your, your, uh, your sacrifice is greatly appreciated and serving the church is, I mean, what more noble calling that could there be? So right. thank you so much, Carl. Everybody out there, thank you so much for being here this week. And hey, let's be careful out there. Amen.